0: Good morning. <clears throat> you know, you don't know it until you step up here. There's a large sign. Oh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, no, I'm just going to turn that. There's a large sign here that says, introduce yourself. I'm going to do that. Uh, my name is Alex De La Ola, um, or just Alex. Don't get caught up on the last name. I know it's hard. Um, and it's interesting. I've been going here for five years. I'm an elder here at the University 7th Adventist Church. Um, and... In all the places that I've been in the last five years working with Public Campus Ministry, I kind of was thinking about this. Thinking about it this week, I just realized I've never actually preached here for a Sabbath service. I've done Crave, I've done you know the Vespers, I've done um, things at other churches, I've preached at other churches I've in in, uh, in and around this area and in Michigan, and I've just never preached here at home. So this is uh, it's good because. I tend to get nervous in those other places, but here I feel like I'm talking to my friends. I know I'm talking to my friends, my family, my church family, Um, and and to those of you that I I don't know that are not familiar faces to me, welcome to the University Church. Um, We're very glad to have you. How many of you guys had a really great week? Yeah, if you had a really great week, raise your hand. How many of you guys had a not-so-great week, could have been better? You know, be honest. You know, we're here. It's the Lord's day. We can, we can, we can reflect on our week, and um, we can thank the Lord for the blessings, and ask Him to help us where, uh, where we need blessings. Um, this week for me was pretty, pretty hectic. Um, I just started a new job at uh, MSU Federal Credit Union, I'm an intern there. Um, and as I'm there, I'm working with a lot of different people, a lot of interesting people, um, and I had some issues with my classes. But the Lord is good. You know, that verse, it, it's not so much to do with my, um, you know, James 1.17, it's not so much to do with my sermon, more to do with, I think, a message that we all need to reflect on more. You know, that every good gift comes from the Father of lights, who has no shadow or variation of turning, right? And, and it, just, it just reminds me that we need to focus more on who God is rather than who we are. Because by focusing on who God is, we become more who God designed us to be. And the thing about God that is so interesting is that he always subverts our expectations. We think we're thinking that one thing's going to happen and another thing happens. We, we try to build a system that's going to work out for the best, and suddenly it kind of crumbles around us and we wonder what's happening. Or maybe we find ourselves in a very sticky situation with no way out, and something amazing happens. Um, and so this sermon is about that today. But before that, I want to say a quick prayer, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for allowing me to be here among friends, among family, um, loved ones who have seen me grow and who have seen um, amazing change, not just in the church, but also outside of the church, Lord, in the last five years. And I ask that you please uh, give me the words to speak today. Lord, this sermon that I've written, it only came from you. I know this because it's something that I needed to hear, and it's something that I think we all need to hear and understand a bit more. I ask that you please send your Holy Spirit to this room that we may all be filled with the spiritual nourishment that only you can provide. Father, I thank you so much for being consistent, for being constant, for being who we need you to be at all times. We thank you so uh, so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I figured I would start at the beginning. Before the book of Genesis, there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels. Right? We've read this in Revelation, the great dragon. And those angels were cast out. There's this revolt. And they are scorned from the sight of God. They are kicked out. They are never to be allowed back in the holy presence of the Lord. And this has, I imagine, shaken the universe. Beings from all over the universe wondering... What's next? What's going to happen? How is this possible that harmony has been broken? How is it possible that that discord has arrived in the harmonious presence of God? And I highly recommend to read the first chapter of what Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets to get an understanding of how it happened, why it happened, and who were the main characters. But we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3, and it's happened again. There is another revolt. The reading leader of this revolt, uh, this character, this Satan, this Lucifer, has found others to, to, to tempt, to prey on, to try and convince that God is not the, the, the God that he says he is, that there's something hidden, there's something wrong with the order of heaven. And it starts in verse... One, and it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You will not surely die. And I imagine if, if, maybe if we had a lot more of this conversation, if we had a lot more, um, if there was more conversation to even be had, the, Satan, the, the devil would have said something like, look, I disobeyed, and I'm still alive. I broke the law of God. I decided not to, to, to eat of the forbidden fruit of pride, and I'm, I'm still alive. You're not going to die. And so we know how the story goes. She eats, Adam eats, They discover they're naked and afraid, they're ashamed. They go and hide, and God is wandering through the garden wondering where his creations are. Of course, he knows where they are. And he finds them and he begins to tell them what's going to happen now. And the reason they were afraid is because even though they ate, even though this serpent said, You shall not surely die, they know what's coming. They know what's coming. Eve has eaten, and she knows what's coming. Adam decides, you know what? It's better not to live than to live a life without Eve. So he knows what's coming. And here God comes, wandering through the garden, looking for them, and in their minds, God is coming to wipe them from existence. Satan has just conquered the planet. Through these two, who dominion was given to them to rule over this planet under authority of God, Satan has now put them under his rule, now ruling this planet. God made Adam and Eve in his image, and now they are in the image of sin after Satan, of rebellion. And as God wanders through the garden, I imagine they're reflecting on this, thinking, We're going to die now. Any moment, he's just going to come and strike us down. But God has other plans. God looks at them, and with nothing but love in his heart, with a plan in mind, he does bestow curses on them, yes. Curse to toil, pain in childbirth. And then he curses this this, this snake, of course. But among all of that, he leaves a promise. He says, I will put, speaking of The snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Imagine you are standing there, ashamed, naked, afraid of being just wiped out, blotted out. And instead, God comes up and says, you know what? I'm giving you a way out. And the crazy thing is, it's not your heel that's getting crushed or bruised, It's someone else. I'm sending someone else, a promised Messiah, and he's going to bear the weight of this. All you have to do is trust. It's probably a solemn moment, but I imagine the neurons in their brains are just firing off, wondering, how is this possible? Wait, what's going on? We thought we were going to die because, God, you said you will surely die. And I'm sure in later conversations they begin to understand that, yes, we are going to taste that death, that first death. But there is someone that will come along and free us from that second death, eternal death. And so in their minds, as death is encroaching upon them, as they are slowly realizing that they are dying, in the place of what would have been an eternal death, God places the promise of life. Amen? And that's something that's true for every single one of us. Moving through the Old Testament, there's a symbolic, well, I guess it's a, it's a something, it's not an item, it's, it's fire. It's a symbol of a lot of things in, in, in the scriptures. Um, the Holy Spirit is one of those, it symbolizes the Holy Spirit, but also the first time we really experience the power of fire in the Old Testament is in the book of Genesis. Does anyone know where? I'll give you a hint. The main characters are Lot and his family. Alright, Sodom and Gomorrah. In this time in, in, in Earth's history, Adam and Eve are long gone. Their grandchildren and their grandchildren's grandchildren are long gone. They have tasted that first death. And the characters on the scene now are Abraham, Lot, Lot's family, Abraham's family, and the citizens of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these places were evil. Evil. Jude 7 says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Oftentimes, we just think um, Sodom and Gomorrah, but Jude actually says, and the surrounding cities. This entire area, this entire geographical region, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God established himself as still sovereign because I imagine that Satan has gotten wild. He's decided, you know what, this earth it's mine and look and this is is my capital, this Sodom and Gomorrah. Untempered lust, untempered pride, untempered greed and desire, consumption, And he says, this is my kingdom. But God has another idea because he goes to Lot and Abraham and tells them, no, guys, this is still my kingdom. And I'm going to show you how. And we know that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced a rain of fire and brimstone coming down from the heavens. And throughout the rest of biblical history, they are referenced and regarded as uh, a stain on the human existence. This is what you don't want to happen. They are held up as a standard of what happens when you, so, you stray so far from God's love and from his desire for us as people. And in Israel's history, this tradition is passed down person to person to person through stories, through this oral tradition of telling stories to your young ones to make sure they understand the sovereignty and power of God. And in Israel's oral tradition, this fire from God, this holy fire, comes to cleanse and to destroy. Israel has spent about 400 years in captivity in Egypt. In that time, with their own oral traditions, yes, they have been exposed to Egyptian paganism. And I imagine that in that Egyptian paganism, they have heard stories of Ra, the sun god of the Egyptians, of Sekhmet and Wajet. Gods who control this fire with vengeance, with passion, with destruction. And we know from our history of church history, if you are a student of church history, what happens when a people of God are exposed to and intermingled with paganism. They begin to adopt some of those ideologies into their own belief systems. And so imagine the scene with me the tenth plague has hit, the firstborn of Egypt are gone. Egypt is wailing out, a cry that has never been heard before or will never be heard since. And they're making their way out into the wilderness. And it's dark. You know, we don't have the light. They don't have the light pollution that we have today. It's it's pitch black. They're walking... Maybe putting one foot in front of the other, trying to make sure that they're not stepping on anybody else. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people making their way towards what they were told would be the promised land by Moses who represents, who represents the one true God that they've only heard stories about. Passed down from age to age, from generation to generation. And suddenly they see a light. The whole group of them, they see a light coming down from the heavens I imagine they're confused at first. But as they get closer, as they feel the heat, they realize what it is. Here comes the fire. A massive pillar of fire snaking down in the heaven when all they've heard through their oral traditions is of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction through holy fire. All they've heard for the last 400 years from the Egyptians is of vengeful fire from the angry pagan gods. And here it is streaming towards them. And I imagine it hits the ground. I know me, I'd probably be terrified. I know all of us would probably be terrified if that were to happen. But with their history in their head and the and the pagan rituals that they've heard of in the past, I imagine these people are struck stone still. And you know what the crazy thing about it is? Nothing happens. No one's hurt. No one is destroyed, no one is injured, no one is overly hot. I imagine you probably wouldn't wanna stand too close to that fire, but this pillar of fire that God sent down was not a cleansing, holy, destructive fire. Like they've heard about in the past, this holy fire was there to guide them. God looked at his people stumbling around in the dark and said, you need light, I'm gonna guide you. And I imagine Moses is telling them, this is the power of our God, he's gonna lead you in the darkness. When you can't find your way, Look towards the pillar of fire, because that's where God is. And in the daytime, when the pillar of fire is replaced by a cloud, when cloudiness, fogginess typically represents confusion, disarray, discord, not knowing where you are, instead God uses this symbol of the cloud to represent a pillar of his sovereignty. Here I am, look at me, I'll guide you. In the Old Testament God has a history of changing what was typically thought to be one thing into a symbol of something else entirely. You've sinned, sin typically means death. But God says, no, you know what? Sin can also mean, it can mean grace is coming. God says, you know, fire. What does fire usually mean? Burning, destruction, it's hot. But it could also mean a light in the darkness. And as history goes on, as time moves forward, he does this over and over and over again. And sometimes not in the ways that people would expect. In the New Testament, it's not only the way that God interacts with humanity that subverts the Jewish expectations, the world's expectations. But it's also in the way that he became humanity. In this time, for those who studied their scripture, in the first century AD, who knew their history, they were students of God's word, to them it was no surprise that Babylon had had, had, first of all taken the Jews captive, It was no surprise that Persia had taken over Babylon. It was no surprise that Greece had completely dominated the known world with Alexander the Great and Philip of Macedon. And finally, when Rome came to power, crushing and smashing and devouring everything just like the prophecy said it would, these people were not surprised. These students of the law, these, these legislators, these people who knew God's word through and through, they weren't surprised. They said, you know what? It was bound to happen. God said it would happen. And Rome comes along crushing and smashing everything and, and, and stamping its seal into everything it crushes so that it looks like Rome, it talks like Rome, it speaks the Roman language, which is Greek. Um, but still, everything must look like Rome. This also included all of those in their path, like the Jews. And when the Jewish people made it clear that they would not relinquish their cultural identity as the people of God, the chosen ones, as they made it clear that they would, some of them would rather die than give up their beliefs, their religious practices, their economy, Rome had to figure something out quick, and so what did they do? First of all, they took uh, those rebels, the revolters, and they made an example out of them. Second, they tightened the leash around them financially. Insane, oppressive taxation going to the emperor. So that no matter what these Jewish people did, whether they were working, whether they were revolting, they were always giving, you could say, money or example to the emperor of Rome. And the people felt it, the crushing weight Of the Roman rule. And when Jesus, right before he is born, there are lots of revolts happening. They begin to pop up, and Rome would do away with them as easily as they started. And the one thing Rome was always sure fearful, but maybe a little bit um, excited for in a brutal way, was a full scale revolt total rebellion of the Jewish nation, so that they could finally stamp out these these rebels, these people who will not submit to the Roman paganism, to the Roman rule, to the Roman cultural identity. All Israel needed was a leader. And the Pharisees knew this. The Romans knew this. The people in all classes of Jewish life, they knew this, that one day someone is going to come and is going to free us from these people. Because we don't, the Jewish mentality, was we don't want to be under a man's rule. We don't want to be under, you know, another people, another nation's rule. We want to be under God's rule through our king. For the Romans, that man was to be an enemy, cut down, shamed, and shown. This is what happens when you try to lead a revolt against Rome that would be displayed as a mockery and a lesson for the world. For the Jews, that man would be their Messiah, leading them into a new golden age of freedom, of military might, and conquering those who stood in their ways. And just like those Israelites were accustomed to seeing the pagan rituals of the Egyptians, of understanding from from the Egyptian tradition the vengeance of fire and the vengeance of, of their pagan gods, I think that so too these Jews under Rome... having having been uh, subjugated, having been taxed heavily, having been threatened with the steel of the sword, wanted nothing more than their God to send someone to do the exact same thing to them. They've been seeing it for all these hundreds of years, and they want justice. They want revenge. They want to do the exact same thing to everybody else and make Israel a worldwide power. But it's interesting that these same leaders, these same scholars who understood that Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, like we understand it, somehow they got to those 10 toes and they just forgot everything that they ever ever learned because they might have known Israel would not be a worldwide power. The Jews wanted a mighty king, but God in his method of uh, subverting expectations, he gave them a king, all right, but first, he gave them a baby. The Jews wanted someone that would relieve them of their experience. But the beautiful thing about it is that God wanted to live their experience. The Jews wanted freedom from their taxes. They wanted freedom from the brutal oppression. God wanted to experience that so he could grow up saying, I know where you've been. I know what you're going through. And I'm here to guide you. The Jews wanted someone to understand their plight. So that's what God gave them. The Jews wanted someone to, to rule over them that had lived among them. I imagine they thought of someone like Saul being chosen from the masses, someone that's just like them, handsome, mighty. But God had other plans. You see, God wanted to the free them of bondage, but not of the Romans. Because this their story, these people, these Jews' story, just like we began today, began all the way in heaven with that rebellion. And with the conquering of this planet by Satan's temptations. He wanted to free them not only of bondage of the Romans. Yeah, it'd be nice if they were free. It would it'd be nice if they didn't have to fear for their lives. But more than that, he wanted to free them from sin. He wanted to free them from The oppressive tactics of Satan in his kingdom. He wanted these people to spread and to conquer, these Israelites, but not the way that the Romans had spread and conquered. He wanted these Israelites to spread and conquer with the love of Christ. He wanted them to spread the good news and use the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit was given to them to conquer hearts for the Lord. Not in matters of politics and war, but in matters of heart and salvation. Jesus wanted to exert his reign over a wayward kingdom, but that kingdom wasn't Rome. That kingdom was the kingdom of sin, Satan's kingdom. And so you have this Israelite-Jewish idea of who God should be, what his character is, and who he's going to send, and his, his mind, in, in, in their mind, in the religious leaders of the time, which then trickled down through into the lower classes of society, this changed into not just um, a, a, you know, a, a top-level belief, but all the way through the society, it was permeated that our God is going to send us a warrior. He's going to send someone to fight for us, to deliver us from this. But they had a skewed image of God from all of their time, isolating themselves, from all of their time being under the rule of somebody else, they had forgotten what God had promised them. You see, if you read the scripture, you actually get a a very multifaceted view of what and who God is. Is he a protector? Yes, he protects. Is Is he also a warrior? Yeah, there's many instances of the Bible of God fighting for his people. Is he a redeemer? Most certainly. But this God that these Israelites proclaimed to serve, but they didn't know, most of them anyway, was not so concerned with the concerns of men as the religious leaders had expected him to be. Instead, God, Jesus, was more concerned with the men themselves about their salvation, their eternal life, about making sure that they would not surely die. But the only way that were possible is to break the bondage of sin. And so I want to take us to the cross. In the book of John. Sorry, the book of Luke, verse 23. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1217. And God does something unprecedented. He really does. If you look at, at the ramifications of what he does here, it's not only smart and, and we say, oh yeah, you know, God, he saw it coming, he knew what to do, he had the plan, but it's unprecedented. Jesus is on the cross. The disciples, chiefly Judas. You know, Judas didn't just want to betray Jesus. No, he wanted to see Jesus lift himself up higher. He wanted him, he wanted Jesus to become the leader to push Jesus into the leadership that Judas believed Jesus would have, but it was the wrong type of leadership. The disciples expected him. When taken captive by the Romans, by the chief priests, by the Pharisees and Sadducees, they fully expected him to just, I don't know, explode into like, glory and might and power, and I am Jesus, I am God, this ends now, right? But that's not what happened. God arrives as a baby. He grows up as a carpenter. He, he ends up in chains. What, are you going to expect a carpenter to fight back? He's not a warrior. I mean, he is. He's God. He's a warrior God. But, but this man, this Jesus, is not a warrior. He's not an insurgent. He's not a revolutionary. Not in the way they're thinking. Because they don't see the finer points of... What God is doing here. They don't see the grand design. C.S. Lewis uses the word the grand tapestry. They don't see the inner weavings and outer weavings. They don't see the entire thing. They don't see the whole plan. They expect Him every step of the way from being beaten by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, by being whipped by the Romans, scourged, and make, made fun of, mocked. They keep on playing this game of, okay, now, okay, now. Okay, Jesus, now. And they finally see him up there on the cross, and they say, oh, I get it. I get it. At his most vulnerable. Okay, now. But then God completely takes their expectations and flips them on their head, and not just the disciples. I imagine the entire universe is watching this, looking at God being beaten and bruised, and say, okay, God, now. Okay, stop this, God, now. We get it. Okay, God, we get it. Stop. Please. Imagine the horror of an entire universe that has never sinned, never felt the taste of death, watching God go through all of this, expecting him to at some moment just, again, show his majesty, his divinity, his power. And then something happens. Like I said, God does the unprecedented. He does the unexpected. He blows all their minds, and everything comes to a screeching halt when Jesus cries out in verse 46 of Luke chapter 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. God did the unexpected. Everyone expected God to just step up and say, okay, enough is enough. This ends now. But God turns their expectations on their head and does something nobody ever expected him to do. He dies. The entire universe just watched God die. The disciples watched this person that they believed to be God. Maybe they had some doubts. But they believed, this is God, this is the the Savior, this is the Messiah, and he just died? And the world comes to a halt. The sun just stops shining. The birds, the insects, they're just quiet. I imagine the high priest got quite a shock when he saw that temple veil ripping in two, and everything is just quiet. All of creation is just stunned. What just happened? Did God just die? Yeah, he did. He doesn't save himself. And I imagine that a lot of these disciples, through the time, they're running, they're fleeing, they're scared. After Jesus has died, the universe itself is wondering what is happening on this planet. Literally, what on earth is happening? How is it possible that God died? That shouldn't be possible. Three days go by. And something extraordinary happens, amen? Because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the third day. Because God dying is unexpected and it's terrible. But if they were listening, if they had paid attention, if the disciples had had, had realized Not once, not twice, but three times Jesus prophesied his death, and three times he always followed it up with, but don't worry, after three days, I'll be coming back. He's resurrected. And looking back, it's interesting because (laughs) Satan has told these Adam and Eve, these people, you shall not surely die. Essentially, you'll live forever. If you read Ellen White, um, she says that you know Satan had really believed that he would essentially tempt them to sin, and then make them eat from the tree of life, and then they would be immortal. They would be like him for eternity, in his image. That's all he wanted. Obviously, it didn't happen. But but Satan's goal was not to necessarily kill Adam and Eve physically. Rather, to destroy them spiritually, to let them die spiritually, but keep them alive for all of eternity as they watched the world crumble around them. And that that was his whole goal. That's in Patriarchs and Prophets chapter 1, I believe. But God does something so interesting here when he dies and is resurrected. You see, from that time, from the moment that Adam and Eve were condemned to die that first death, with the promise of salvation from the second death, Death was a scary thing. It was terrifying. The entire Hebrew economy was built up on the fact that something has to die, a symbol of that second death, so that you don't have to. Because if that doesn't happen before you die the first death, if you don't atone with God, if you don't atone for your sins, that second death will be your wages of your sin. Death is a very terrifying thing. Death is not something you want to experience in the Hebrew economy, especially not in Jesus' time, when they've lost all meaning of the symbology of you know, the lamb being Christ, of salvation, of the second death. It's just means to an end at this point. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they tell these people, just buy the lamb, kill the lamb, you'll be fine. That's what God wants. In essence, it had become worse in the Roman system. At least in the Roman system, they knew who they were worshiping. Or they thought they knew. In this system, before Jesus died, they had no clue who, what they were doing. They had no clue. They, they didn't know that what the second death meant. They didn't know what salvation actually was, what faith actually was. They were putting their trust in systems, in symbols, but not the substance. And so death was to be feared. But the moment that Christ died, God just flips it on its head. He said, you want the way to life? The way to life is death. How does that make sense? But God did it anyway. God understood something that most people had yet to understand. Obviously, he's God. But even as Christ, he was trying to tell people, get this message across death is the answer here. In the garden with Nicodemus, the midnight conversation, you must be born again. In order to be born again, what happens first <laughs> is you have to die so you can be born again. You can't be born if you already exist, therefore you have to cease to exist to be born. Nicodemus didn't understand it. Sometimes I still don't understand it. But I try to have faith and I try to, I, I, I pray, God, show me what it is to be born daily in Christ. Show me what it is to be born again so that I can experience death, yes, in Christ, but also resurrection in Christ. As Rome progressed, they realized that the king of the Jews had come, and he'd gone. But he'd left his mark. And it was too little too late, because by that point, you had a system of believers who didn't fear death. That was Rome's whole thing. If you don't do X, we're going to kill you. If you don't do Y, we're going to kill you. And your families and everything. But these believers, they didn't care. Kill us. We love God. Our God saved us from death. Kill us. We don't care. Not apathy in an in, in unholy way, but they didn't fear death. There was no fear. How could you fear something that didn't hurt you? It's like the burning bush. You stick your hand into the fire and it doesn't burn. God had removed the sting from death. There was no more pain from death. And even now, as we experience death, it is a harsh reality that people die. And it's sad and it's terrifying, I think, on some level. But as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we have a message that tells you you don't have to be afraid. We know it's scary. Read Ellen White. Jesus was scared. He was on the cross, maybe for a bit different reasons. He couldn't see past the portals of the grave, but he was scared too. But you keep moving forward. You keep trusting in God, and that true love will erase all the fear that we feel of death. And that's what these followers were going through, the early church. You know, I always think of the matchup, the early church versus Nero the emperor, who wins? And you would think this emperor who's Massive in power, in brutality. I mean, the Roman Colosseum was built just so that he could have a place to watch Christians Christians die and laugh about it. Terrible, terrible place. And yet for every Christian he killed, three, four more sprung up in their place. I mean, the Roman executors themselves. I heard a story. There was a woman, a Christian woman, who was about to be sentenced to death by beheading. And the whole time she just smiled at her executioner. And it freaks him out. This executioner is, is, he's shaking. He doesn't know what to do. And she reaches out and just steadies his hands. Just don't be afraid. I'm not. Do your job. Imagine that. of casually looking in the face of your executor and telling him it's all right. He needs to do his job. Because the thing that Christians, real Christians, understand is there's more where we came from. Why? Because the fountain never runs dry. And so, just like with the Israelites, this unstoppable force led under Moses and Joshua, who was unrelenting to take back their land, to claim their land. This is exactly what Jesus was doing with the Christians, just in a different way. Step by step, day by day, person by person, taking back the territory that Satan had claimed for himself. And just like, actually, sadly enough, just like with the Israelites. a king had come to a prophet named Balaam and said, how do we stop this? I need you to curse them for me. And he tried cursing them, but every time he opened his mouth, a blessing would come out. And Balaam said, I don't know what to do here. Until one day he got a terrible, intelligent, brilliant idea and said, you know what you need to do? Is you need to remove God's protection. the only way to do that is to seduce them with power, with women, with all of these other things. Because otherwise, you're never going to win. And that's exactly what they did. And the Israelites fell. Rome had the same issue. Day by day, territory was being claimed. I imagine if it kept on this way, if it wasn't for, obviously, prophecy and things like this, but, I mean, this was foretold, the apostasy came in. Eventually, Rome got tired of it. Say, said, what can we do? Constantine said, well, you know what? State religion is now going to be Christianity, and we're going to merge these religions together. And eventually, Christianity began to lose its power. At least that power. And the fear of death came back. And here we are today in this kind of day and age where we still fear death as Christians. That fear is, is back. And as I read of the history of the Christian church, and I read of the, of, of the fearlessness of the Christian church, I mean, disciples would, I mean, Paul himself walked straight into Jerusalem knowing, hey, I'm probably going to die here. I would wager that most of us would probably not do that. Say some excuse of, well, God can use me other places. I'm not going to put myself, so, you know, that's presumption. You know, but Paul just walked right in. But we know that the latter rain is coming, Amen. That there's going to come a time where the Holy Spirit is poured upon us. And where we don't have to be afraid anymore. That God reminds us. Because the biggest thing, the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is always going to be our short memory. Always. The more we forget, the less we remember. The less power we have because the less we claim God's power that we've forgotten. But I tell you this, church, God is always subverting our expectations in the smallest ways, in the biggest ways, and somewhere in between. And the most beautiful thing is that he wants to teach us to do the same thing. He wants to teach us, one, that he's going to overcome the mountains and obstacles in our life. Two, not to trust in the things of the world, because they'll always disappoint. But three, that we need to be the surprise in other people's lives. I started work at MSU Federal Credit Union this week, and it is—it's an amazing place to work. I've never worked in an environment like this. It's very positive, wonderful people. And as I'm interviewing, I'm—you know—I'm—you I'm know—they ask, they ask a question about teamwork. What have you done with—you know—working with teams, leadership, things like that? And I mentioned my work with with the church, because that's a huge part of my life. And I want to be a witness to these people and say, hey, you know what? The church, the Seventh-day Adventist church is a beautiful, amazing, diverse place to be, and I love every moment of it. And so I mentioned my time at summer camp. I mentioned my time in public campus ministry. And specifically, I mentioned my time in in Oshkosh, directing in, in, uh, in their program, and I said, okay, well thank you, you know, interview's over. I get the job, amen, I praise the Lord for that. And on my first day at work, my manager is you know, training me and doing all this stuff. My first day of real work, I had training and stuff before that, but my first day of real work, we're sitting down and my manager's like, all right, let's take lunch. And we're sitting at lunch and she looks at me, she says, Alex, you know I've always wanted to go to Oshkosh. I'm like, what? She said, I've always wanted to go to Oshkosh. It always looked so fun. Just all these pathfinders and I'm like, what? <laughs> Turns out, as she grew up in Brazil, my manager was a block away. She grew up Catholic, but a block away from her house, the closest Christian private school was the Seventh-day Adventist uh, Academy and uh, elementary school. And so as she was growing up, she saw these pathfinders who were older than her going to this Oshkosh, Wisconsin and having a blast out there, meeting people from all over the world. She just always wanted to go. And so when I brought that up to her, it just just sparked that in her mind, that excitement. And she told me, she said, I never expected to meet another Seventh-day Adventist. And you know what's crazy is I guarantee you there's another Seventh-day Adventist working at MSU Federal Credit Union. I mean, there has to be. Law of averages, there's like 70,000 employees. That's probably smaller than that. But there's there's a lot of employees there. One person, one more person has to be a Seventh-day Adventist. But they don't know. My manager is just looking for someone. And you know what's crazy and, and a bit sad? She tells me this story of when she was at this academy, and she says, you know... When I was in fifth grade, it was kind of hard because, you know, I I wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist, and I showed up to school with my lunch, and I started eating my lunch, and suddenly I started to be looked at funny, and then people started like shunning me, and then eventually someone had to talk to me and say, you can't eat that here because this little girl who was never raised Adventist wanted to enjoy her ham sandwich, And and I could tell the way she was telling this story is out of everything she could have mentioned, that's what she talked about. Eight years in a a Seventh-day Adventist school, and that's what she talked about, was being shunned for eating a ham sandwich. And I had to apologize and say, you know, I'm sorry. You know, know, that's really sad. I I wish that that wasn't the case, you know. But also, I want to establish myself as someone that says, Hey, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and you're not, you know. Let's study it out. Let's, you know, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, let let's let's have a conversation about, about why I don't eat pork. But the beautiful thing is, is I love Mexican food. All right, I'll start with that. I, I I really enjoy tamales. My my girlfriend Paloma can tell you that. I really enjoy her grandmother's tamales. Yesterday at work, I'm there and, and there's just a spread. Someone brought in tamales. If you don't know what that is, it's like stuff wrapped in corn dough and it's really great. And I'm just like looking at this feast before my eyes, and I go to reach out for that for one, and just to see what it is, because you know you don't you never know what's lurking inside these tamales. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you get a surprise that you didn't like. Um, I and I go to reach out for this one, and my manager first one. No, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Why not? That one's pork. Thank you. Good look. Good looks. Thank you for looking out for me. You see, my manager's looking out for me because she knows my dietary restrictions. She knows my religion. She's accustomed to it. She understands it. She's heard of it before. And now I have someone I can trust that's going to make sure that I'm on the straight and narrow, but also I'm in a position now to say, you know what, Lord, you've put me in this place to be a witness. And this manager that you have called to be here at this time, you've guided her path all the way through, even though she may not know it and you've put us both in the same spot, in the same place, I guarantee you something amazing is going to happen. I guarantee you something amazing is going to happen because this is how God leads. He subverts your expectations. He tells you, oh, you just... I'm, yeah, I just blessed you with a job. But instead, he's blessed me with a ministry, a place where I can work and I can labor and I can talk and I can enjoy being a Seventh-day Adventist, and someone, one of my higher-ups, knows what that is and is fond of it. And this is the beautiful way that God deals with us. He always gives us something unexpected to deal with, for good or bad in the short run, but always for good in the long run. He gives us something unexpected to deal with, to work with, to pray about, to, to someone to study with. My very first Bible study here at MSU, working with campus, my friend Abe. And, and, and as I was studying this out, as I, was, as I was reading this, I just realized God, you've been doing this my entire ministerial career. My entire time as a missionary, my entire time ministering to, to students at MSU, you've been doing this. All my friend Abe wanted was someone he could talk to about the Bible. That's all I wanted. But he would go on campus every day, and he would see these guys at Wells Hall. I don't know if they're still there. They were five years ago, four years ago. Uh, they were called the Wells Hall Preachers. And they were fiery, but not the good kind of fiery. They were the fire and brimstone kind of fiery. You know, if you don't believe this, you're going to burn forever. And he would talk to, he would talk to students that they would, they would just assume were, 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 were Muslim and tell them things like, oh, your prophet, he's burning right now too, and you're going to burn, just terrible things. All Abe wanted was someone that didn't look like that, but could tell them the truth about who is this Jesus guy. And one day we met, through a series of pretty strange uh, happenings we met, and the first thing he mentioned was the Wells Hall preachers. And he asked, is, is, are Christians really like that? So I said, I can't speak for all of Christians, but I, I don't like that. Like, personally, I don't like that, <laughs> what they're saying. And he says, yeah, but you're like all the other Christians, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, He's like you drink? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't drink. The Lord's delivered me from that. Amen? I mean, I, I don't drink. And he says, well, yeah, 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 but you probably like smoke and do other I'm like, no, I don't. Why? My body's a temple. I don't want to do those things. He says, yeah, but okay, you don't actually follow the law of God, though. I mean, you go to church on Sunday, right? I was like, no, I go to church every Saturday, Sabbath. He's just like, wow. And I could see the wheels turning in his head when we first met and had this conversation. And he's asking himself, did I actually find someone that is... A real Christian, and understanding a bit of the Muslim faith, I started to use uh, I started to use key words. Oh yeah, you know, I I really think that we should all be people of the book, and instantly his attention. That's a very common phrase in the Islamic faith. To know the book, to study the book. The book is the word of God, the scriptures. And it came down to my friend Abe really trusting that Jesus is a lot more than a lot of Muslims would say he is. And I praise the Lord for that, that God will use us to subvert other people's expectations, not just subvert our own. There are people out there that are searching for a Christian to talk to. I was speaking to my friend. And, um, he's, a, he's a common speaker in, in Adventist circles, Anil Kanda. And you know, his story is, is, is very similar to my friend's. He would wander the halls of his, his university looking for someone to teach him about God. And he would always say that. I I was just looking for someone to teach me about Jesus, about God. I I literally had this thought in my my head and and would think, God, if you're you're real, if you're there, just send me someone to talk to me about it. People are like that. They're out there. Could be in the cubicle right next to you, on the bus across the aisle from you. And as Seventh-day Adventists, And and not just as Seventh-day Adventists, as humans, with questions, with doubts. They could be sitting in the pew seat right next to us right now. I wish someone would just pray with me, talk to me about God, lift me up, encourage me. And Jesus is like that all the time. When you get close to Christ, you notice that he always gives you more than what you expected you would ever get and leaves you with less baggage than you ever thought you would get rid of. To close, in the book of Hebrews. You know what? I'm losing the verse. I didn't write. Oh, there it is. Chapter 13 and verse 8. Paul says it very succinctly. He says it in a way that is easy for everyone to understand, that is easy for everyone to to get. And I want this to be the lesson of today. That in all the subversion of expectations, in all the, you know, the oh, we thought this, but then that, you know, And, and they were thinking this, but then that, when I talked to them, you know, for every time that something shifts or is confusing or there's doubt or there's victory and there's success, whatever happens in our lives, let this be the constant theme of your heart. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, no matter what happens. No matter if, if, if your journey takes you to persecution and martyrdom, takes you to success and, and preaching to, like Paul, the kings of the age. Whether it takes you to a living alone or living with a giant family, it does not matter. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your consistency, Lord, for giving us something to believe in that will never change, and that something is your Son, Jesus Christ. And the message that he gave to the world that he will always be the same in love, in kindness, in patience. And Lord, I ask that you please send us out to be that for other people. Lord, people today, they hear the word Christian and there's a lot of negative connotations. When they hear the word Christian, it It's synonymous with with shame, with judgment, with persecution. But Lord, I ask that when you send us out, that you help us to subvert their expectations, to flip the script on them as you flipped it on us, Lord. Help us to show them, Lord, that true Christianity is love because we follow a God who is love. Father, I ask that you please... Let the Sabbath day be one of blessing, not just for us, but those that we'll be ministering to at the nursing home. Lord, I ask that you please give us strength to minister, give us words of encouragement, not just for those that we minister to outside of here, but Lord, even our members here in the church, let us be kind and loving to one another. Father, we thank you for a Sabbath day where we can hear your word and do it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.